recording video. Okay, we're good. So I'm going to start with the intros. So hi, my name is uh, Christian Haynes. I'm here with Gamers with Glasses at gamerswithglasses.com. And I am joined by another editor from Gamers with Glasses, Don Everhart. Uh, and we're super thrilled to be joined by Kaizen Gameworks and specifically by Oliver Clark Smith. Ali uh, and Phil Crabtree. Uh, Phil, uh, Ali and Phil, why don't you introduce yourselves? Uh, thanks. We are Kaizen Gameworks. Uh, we're a two-person full-time team uh, that worked with a bunch of contractors to do Paradise Killer. Uh, I'm Ollie, the creative director, and uh, Phil is our technical director. Yep, that's me. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so I thought we would start off uh, by asking you uh, about just, you know, what you guys have done before starting up Kaizen Gameworks, where you came from, uh, what other roles you've occupied. Uh, I imagine you guys have lots of hats that you're wearing these days. <laughs> uh, well, what about before this? Right. Um, I mean, suppose the first thing about us is we've known each other for, what, 20 something years now, Ollie? Something like that? Yeah. Um, and I suppose the first thing we did together was be in a, a band. We used to be in a punk band. Um, so that's kind of, I suppose, I was going to say work together, but that made no money. <laughs> <laughs> that was just us messing around. Um, and we did that. And then I went off to university. Ollie, you went straight to work for, was it Core? Core Design, yeah, testing yeah, one of the two Raider games. So Ollie yeah. did that. I went to university and then I worked for a few years, not in game dev. Um, and Ollie and I then made a game together, an iOS game. So this is when I think like the 3G came out. So it's when you could really start first putting apps on there. So we made a little iOS game together and that was just great fun. And I think from that point on, we always knew there was going to be a time when we made something bigger together. Um, so after we released that iOS game, I started working in the games industry a bit more. Um, I worked mostly with mobile games, but I also did some console. Uh, I did a bit of VR as well. Um, and yes, about two and a half years ago, we said, now is the time, let's, let's quit and do our own thing. So I took what I'd learned technically and Ollie has got a massive amount of well, design prowess and skills that he's brought to it. And, Frankly, without him, Paradise Killer wouldn't be Paradise Killer. So, um, yeah, that's kind of my history. Ollie's got a slightly more interesting one in terms of games. <laughs> uh, yeah, I rolled straight out of school. I didn't want to go to uni. Uh, I rolled straight out of school to look for a job to support uh, my fledgling rec record label at the time. Uh, and the job I got was testing um, the bad Tomb Raider game on PS2. Um, and then as soon as I stepped into the office, I was like, okay, let's do games. Game, forget all this punk rock business. Let's do <laughs> video games. Uh, so uh, then I bounced around between different studios because that was uh, tail end of PS2. And then I did another game on PS2 with a new company. And then we got into the 360 era where a lot of studios shut. So I kind of bounced around between a lot of canned projects and shut studios in the UK before uh, and I did uh, 50 Cent Blood on the Sand and Rogue Warrior and some Harry Potter, some very bad Harry Potter games and then ended up uh, um, super massive to do Until Dawn and uh, did Until Dawn and then Man of Med uh, 
did a lot of the design work for Man of Medan. Uh, and then, yeah, the time was right. We saved up some money to have a go at doing our own thing. Yeah. That's great. Wow, I was just playing Man of Medan uh, because it's on <laughs> Game Pass, and I did not know that connection was going to happen there. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, uh, that was a, a challenging one because it was um, uh, trying to make Until Dawn multiplayer. Like that is that that was a really like, interesting challenge. Uh, uh, I'm quite proud of what what some of that game managed to do. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So, uh, you know, maybe just getting into Paradise Killer, uh, you know, which is out on PC and Switch. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe the first and most obvious question is what made you decide to do a detective game? Why is that the genre you guys were attracted to? Uh, we started, uh, we quit our jobs just wanting to work together and not having like the next billion dollar idea. Uh, so we just started making something that we wanted to make. Uh, to, you know, fulfill that dream of uh, uh, having having a go at it uh, and making something. And we kicked around a few ideas, like a, a Gone Home mixed with crazy taxi style game, uh, which is where a lot of the lore for Paradise Killer was born from. And then we started doing a top-down shooter. Um, but then we realised that what we really wanted to do was something exploration-based. We both grew up playing a lot of games like Resident Evil where it's a lot about world building and just really losing yourself in, in a world and uh, we wanted to do something like that but then also something very character based you know at the time we were playing a lot of Overwatch and I just finished playing Valhalla and you know just amazing characters from like the AAA level down to the, the indie level like we thought we could do something interesting uh, with characters because um you know, we had limited funds, limited time, and we needed to make something that, whilst we wanted to make something for ourselves, also something that might guarantee the future of the company. And we felt that we could do something uh, based around exploration and characters. It was initially more of a walking sim. You would wander around, like everybody's gone to the rapture, you would walk, walk around, pick up like items from lives once lived, uh, and try and piece together why this island had been deserted. But we wanted to have character interaction in there as well. And initially we were just like, well, let the player just pick up all this stuff and speak to people. And then they come to their own conclusions in their heads and the game ends. But that's not very rewarding or satisfying. And the interactions between different characters and the player and evidence kind of just grew and grew more systemic. And at that point, it really be, that's when we kind of hit upon doing something investigation-based rather than being kind of passive and just having a wander around and having a, a look at stuff, um, make you more of an active participant in the investigation. So we didn't set out to do this. This is kind of what it evolved into. And mm. we set out to do something that we could make in a year. And then thankfully, our publisher stepped in and managed to get us to two and a half years so that we could actually make this game what it should have been. Because um, otherwise, we, we came, since we came to the core concept of it very late, uh, we would have shipped a very different and worse game were it not for this extra time to, to explore all these extra systems that we had to put in. Paradise Killer really is a game that 
evolved for us as well. Sometimes you know, games have this really strict design document and other times it's a loose collection of ideas. And for us, it was, we had these core rules of like player freedom and agency and really uh, the exploration sort of mechanics in there, but actually how the game felt and how you progress through it was something that did come quite late and the early versions were very different as Ollie said. So, um, yeah, if we didn't have that extra year and a half, uh, thanks to the publisher support, then it would have been a very different game. Todd, do you want to jump in? Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of getting to a character-based uh, game and, and really starting to insert characters and have an active role in the investigation, um, one of the things that, that I started off wondering just based on how the characters are in the game, uh, is if you had, you know, any specific literary works or, or filmic genres like noir or something like that in mind when you were putting together the characters and that investigation frame. I think the inspiration for a lot of the characters and your interactions with them, they initially started very influenced by uh, Grasshopper Manufacture games like the silver case and uh flowers and rain um i'm a huge fan of of suda's writing um and then kind of similar works by uh lynch uh david lynch and uh, uh i'm a big fan of uh, kafka's works but because they have depending on the translation they have quite a playful use of language and they're very they're very fun to kind of follow along with in a there's a, there's a real sense of otherworldliness and mystery to some of his books. But then with, with Suda's work, it's often very cryptic. Um, the characters, uh, like he doesn't care whether you follow along or not, it feels like a lot of the time. It's like, he's going to do this. There's loads of references. There's loads of kind of very esoteric, uh, cryptic bits of story. And if you, he will get you to the end of it, but whether you have a complete understanding is another matter. And um that was where kind of we started with our character interactions but as you um let the player it, since it's not a linear work we have to make sure the player has a much clearer picture of what is going on so um initially the writing started out very very cryptic and that was a massive failure and then kind of stripped all that out and then every the way we structured every conversation, the way we wrote it, was to make sure the conversation was functional first. So it was very dry, but it would be like, I want to talk to Yuri about his alibi. And then he would say, I was here, I saw this person, and that would be the end of it. And so it was bad for a long time. And then over time, you can layer that kind of the characterization on as you kind of fill in the, the narrative and the lore and the plot uh, and, and the systems, because initially you just picked up a bit of evidence uh, and then we realized that we had to categorize it for you so you can understand how it fit in and one of the rules we came up with was it has to relate to a suspect and it has to relate to a specific case file any ambiguity really hindered player comprehension uh, so a lot of systems as well informed how the characters should act and um, the dialogue options you have and, and what you can speak to them about. Um, but then also that goes hand in hand with these kind of wild character designs and their backstory and laws to, to make them feel fleshed out, interesting characters to speak to. 
That's interesting. It's yeah, like, it, it, oh, go ahead, Don. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, everything uh, and every character does have that kind of motivation behind it, right? It's very clear where all of the characters are coming from at a certain point. Yeah, and sometimes that came in very late because uh, the uh, characterizations for some characters came in very late and then that changed their motivations. So Witness's characterization was late. We didn't know what to do with him for ages. Uh, originally, he was not a suspect. Originally, he fulfilled the role that Judge uh, has in the game. Uh, and the story was rewritten and adapted. Um, as, as another rule was that there must always be multiple suspects for every crime. So uh, Witness, was, um, his original role and characterization just kind of fell by the wayside. And uh, I was really worried about him for a while. He took a while to get where he is. And uh, um, some of the other ones, One Last Kiss, took a while and it was all kind of very iterative of like we implement one thing over here that informs a bunch of things over here that then inform a bunch of things over here and uh, uh, one of the things that we never wanted to do was make it so that the asset cost was prohibitive so that's why it's 2D characters and very little dialogue, recorded dialogue, because then it means that we can iterate right up until the end. You know, I was rewriting and restructuring the trials like two weeks before the end. And if we'd had to lock that down because of voice acting and motion capture, we, we'd have been in real trouble. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. With, with the animation and, and everything like that. Um, I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned Witness uh, because one of my questions was about the decision to name the characters in the way that you did. Um, Witness to the end seems like a really sort of standout character name in a way because it's just so descriptive of the way that the character sees themselves. They're completely consumed by their role and, and their devotion to, to the you know conic gods of the island. Um, and then you have uh, other characters whose names you know, are, are hardly so anchored, right? You have uh, Akiko 14 um, and, and so on. And I was, you know, especially the difference there seems like a very large gulf in terms of how representative the name is or, or isn't to the character involved. But, you know, just in general, uh, what were the decisions that went into naming all of these characters? Well, uh, Witness is a good one to talk about, they say, because uh, he is, they say, very consumed with his role on the island and, and uh, the cycle of the islands. Um, and we wanted characters where there was some mystery to them, obviously, and Witness to the End is a good one for that, because if his only job is to oversee the end of an island and each island lasts for several centuries, like, what is he doing with the rest of his time? Like, what purpose does he fulfill? And uh, that was something that was quite interesting. And I, I, you know, I haven't got an answer for that. I just like having that as being kind of ambiguous and mysterious. I think that's really cool. Um, and then other characters were, uh, a lot of them were just, I don't want to say randomly generated, but, you know, I would look over at my stack of games over there and pull pull names out like Crimson Acid is a, is a good example of uh, there's a PS2 game called Crimson Tears and there's a game called Metal Gear Acid and there we go uh, <laughs> Akiko where did Akiko come from uh, Akiko was a, a, 
a character from one of our first prototypes that we started kicking around the idea of. Uh, Dr. Doom Jazz, I was listening to some Doom Jazz at the time. Um, and Phil found out the other day that Shinji was never supposed to be called Shinji. I needed a name for this character that we, we hurriedly rammed in the game. Um, and I had a Neon Genesis Evangelion toy on my desk and the main character from that is Shinji. So I called him Shinji and I was like, I'll get to that. At some point I will fix that and I will change his name to be something better. And then it just stuck. Um, but some people have wondered if there's more meaning to other people's names. Uh, Lydia is the only one that I can think of because we wanted uh, a lot of the lore to be rooted in kind of ancient Sumerian and ancient world uh, history and uh, Lydia was the name of one of the first cities um, and again she's from an earlier prototype from a different game uh, where we started coming up with some of this lore uh, and then a lot of them were just what's on my shelf <laughs> what is sparking some imagination uh, and then they end up sticking. I mean one of the oh. interesting things about the game is that tension between something that's going on in the present and then that kind of ancientness mm. right like you're referencing ancient sumeria what was was there a specific attraction to that like sense of ancientness hanging over everything that you know even lady love dies got how many millions of years that she's spent in this kind of purgatory uh the the I, again it comes down to mystery and uh specifically on love dies being in exile for for three million days uh, it's a good way to show that these people are immortal and that that is weird. As soon as you start the game, that is strange and you're hit with that and it's difficult to comprehend. Uh, but then the attraction to ancient civilizations is, I just think, you know, looking back, it's very hard for us in the modern day to comprehend what those civilizations were like. We can read about them, we can look at reconstructions, but we can never truly comprehend what it was like there. And then that goes hand in hand with um, I've said this before in other interviews that I do not condone any of Lovecraft's views because he's an awful racist but his, uh, the, his mythology with um, like the elder gods being related to there's some good stories that he wrote about like Houdini being trapped in a pyramid in Egypt and an explorer finding a race of lizard men under a pyramid in Egypt and I, that was really kind of intoxicating before I knew what an awful person he was. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I really like that thought of um, what if man's history is not what we think it is and what if it was shaped by outside forces without, you know, getting into kind of weird YouTube conspiracy videos um, like and the kind of racism inherent with oh no, Africans couldn't possibly have built the pyramid, it has to be aliens, you know, like that, you know, we're beginning to understand how, how these myths and conspiracies are actually quite awful. But um, what if there is unknown? You know, what, what don't we know about our ancient history? And there was one particular Lovecraft story where they reference um, a civilization being struck from history. I can't remember which one it was, but I really like that, that, you know, you go back far enough in time and to record a history and there was enough power within the world to strike something from history because now everything lives forever because of the internet. There was once upon a time where things could just be stricken from history because history was so localized and um, culture was so localized. 
so I think that's really interesting and it, it just gives a good um, weird juxtaposition of kind of ancientness next to like very modern looking apartment blocks in the game. That's great. Well, maybe we could start talking about some of the technical dimensions of the game too, because I want to bring film to the discussion. And, uh, <laughs> I'm quite and, happy to listen to Ollie talk. He's kind of... I mean, we love Ollie and yeah. you know, I'm, I'm teaching a course on Lovecraft and his legacy right now. Um, wow. In which I'm constantly every week saying he was a racist, horrible, misogynistic <laughs> bastard, and yet we, you know, there is a lot of interesting like African American fiction that's responding to his work right now. We mm. need to have the mm. context. But I would love to talk about the combination of 2D and 3D that this game uses. The 2D yeah. character models combined with the 3D world. Um, was that a conscious decision at the very beginning of setting out to make the game? Was that a stylistic as well as a pragmatic decision? Uh, and then also, I think one of the most notable things in this game, and I know that, you know, Don, you were also, I think, taken with this aspect, is that there's platforming in this game. This is a kind of game oh, yeah. you don't necessarily expect platforming to come into. And yet that, like, honestly, just smashing opening of the game where you just free fall to the island, which was just... Yeah. Like, I mean, a, fucking brilliant. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the whole view was just you know, on the way down. Yeah. So the that fall from the island is, it's a favourite, and it was something that was in really early. It's one of the things that stayed from, and uh, not the very earliest prototype, but kind of as soon as we had some mechanics, then we had that fall, and it always just felt great. And I love that you can look over the island and you can kind of see the world that you're going to enter, but. It's dramatic as well. And the idea that came from um, my love of Bayonetta, because in the first level of the first Bayonetta, you are kind of just thrown right into it. And there's so many narrative games, which give you this really sort of gentle, slow walk along, you know, you walk a bit, black screen dialogue, walk a bit, black screen dialogue. And that's fine, but it's not really what we wanted to make. We wanted to make something more aggressive. And what is more aggressive than just jumping off like a, I don't know, 500 foot tower, however big it is. Uh, that sounds really, it, that felt right for us. Like just, um, just show, it, it serves the purpose of showing what kind of game it is and also introducing things like, hey, there's no fall damage um, and encouraging exploration. Uh, so that's where that came from. The idea of 2D characters was always something, I think we've always said that. Um, it's one of the first thing Ollie said, he's always had this really clear idea of, of what these characters should be. And they shouldn't be normal poses. They should have these really dramatic sort of um, poses as well. And if you try and translate that to 3D, you've got a real problem because they're either then just 3D characters in the world and look like odd statues, or you've got to give them animation. And if you give them animation, what does that idol pose look like? What's their movement like? Can you really represent these characters and their big swishy outfits in 3D? And you probably could, but we couldn't. We don't have those skills uh, when we started this. So we had to pick our battles and the 2D characters are more expressive and I understand a lot of people would prefer them to be 3D, but it always fit our game. And the fact that something like Danganronpa has done a very good job of that kind of helps us realize that, yeah, you know, if you can do this in the right way, people will accept it. Um, and yeah, I think it's, it's held through. It's, it's, um, it was a decision on kind of resource and cost, but I think it was also a strong style. And had we suddenly 
had a lot more money to bring somebody else in to do all the 3D art and animation, I don't think we would have changed it. They're just, the characters are just so expressive and it allows us to do so much with them, to have them as 2D. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I can't remember if you asked any other questions in that. <laughs> I was just curious about the platforming. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, because that's just such an integral part of this game that you just don't see in a lot of the games that you might want to group this with, right? Um, mm. Whether it's like Ace Wright or something, you know? It's just yeah. distinct. And I, I just wanted to hear what was the thinking behind that. Uh, yeah. So as Ollie said originally, there was this idea that this was a bit more like um, and everyone's gone to the rapture, kind of more of a walking sim. And then we thought, well, you know, you need, you need to have some sprinting and it'd be good to be able to jump. But the idea of having these extra movement modes is really what can you do to surprise the player? Because we don't have these levels where they suddenly go into this brand new environment and they don't get some new upgrade for your weapon because we don't have them. So we can, you know, upgrade Starlight and you can learn some knowledge. But what else can you do to make the game more interesting? And one of those things is new movement modes. Um, and we went through a couple of them, but the double jump and the air dash, it kind of solidifies that this world isn't really the real world it kind of reminds you that you're playing a game which is really important this paradise killer is very self-aware it is a game it's not supposed to replicate the real world um so by introducing those movement modes you give these little moments of surprise so you know you've been playing for two hours and then you unlock an air dash and oh, what the hell is this what can i do with it and it encourages you to go and explore but even when you're not exploring it just makes movement between a and b more fun you know uh, Paradise Island can be quite big depending on how you play you might traverse a lot and just being able to jump over something uh, like jump dash over a river or just um, quickly hop around the island it makes it your game you choose how you want to explore the island you choose how you want to play and we're trying to just take away um, the limitations that a walking sim might have you know go where you want and we're going to give you the tools to enable that and that goes down to things like if, if you just walk off a ledge, you can jump in midair as well. So it's kind of like a double jump. There's no reason why that should happen. It just felt better. And again, encourages that exploration. So that's where it all came from. And yeah, it's just, you know, no particular desire to have platforming. It wasn't a genre we wanted to pull in, but it encouraged the exploration primarily and gave the player some sense of progression and reward. In a, in a similar uh, sense of sort of combined creative challenges and design challenges, um, how, how did you manage to make the decision to let players start the trial at really any time work? Uh, because, you know, certainly uh, as I played it, I wanted to go around and collect every single possible piece of evidence before starting it, but could have started it at any time. And that seems as though it would come with a lot of complications right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you have no idea it's a thing that i was worried about like you you let people choose when to go to trial and will they ever feel comfortable that they can go to trial and that's kind of one of the things we had to, to we just had to put trust in the player that they would uh, work that out for themselves and feel when it's good for them but i mean ollie can do a much better explanation of this but for me if you can have a game where you can choose where to go and choose who to investigate and choose what you want to pick up, then why would we force you to go through a trial and why would we force a, a particular linear narrative in that trial? It just doesn't make sense. 
if you're going to try and make if you're going to try and give the player any sort of freedom it has to be complete so that includes the risky you go to trial when you want if you want to go to trial immediately you can and in fact one of our focus testers um it was a while ago now a year or 18 months ago maybe um they thought the game was broken because they went straight to trial and they got to the end credits and like well we're done here and we knew that's a problem and we did some stuff to fix it but we never wanted to force it we never wanted to say right you cannot go to trials until you've spoken to this person until you've done this until you've done that because that takes away the freedom and if you take away that feeling then can you really trust the game and the answer is no you've got to lean into it completely yeah it is all about that trust um and the game was supposed to be about freedom so we had to ensure that you have freedom at all times and uh it, the other thing is like we wanted you to feel like an investigator and that's why you can miss you know incredibly important bits of evidence because investigators do investigators build up a prosecution based on um their own personal biases their own mistakes their own prejudices their what they believe and what they want the result to be so we needed to give you that freedom you know it's the, and, and if you are going to allow someone to embody the role of an investigator we have to make sure that we stuck to that essence you know it's the same reason you don't have life bars in monster hunter because you're a hunter you don't know what the creature's life is you have to look for the visual tells so um we, we have to stick to that. And I think it's for the player, you oftentimes, you like with something like Daniel Rompo or Phoenix Wright, you're jumping through narrative hoops to progress the story, which is fine. I love those games and a linear story is fine. But uh, we wanted to, to challenge the player in a way that often games don't. Like you, you start up a game now and you know that the game is going to get you acquainted with the systems, uh, tell you exactly and very explicitly how uh, the world works, how the systems work, the narrative structure will work, collect X number of things and you unlock this and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but we wanted the players, we wanted to put more trust in the players and let them have a, uh, an experience where they are surprised and rewarded for trying different things and discovering different things. It was a real nightmare designing for that level of freedom because if you ignore the trials, even when you pick up a piece of evidence, then when Love Dies has her dialogue with you to explain what it is, or when you, uh, when it's categorised in Starlight, it's got to have a description, but that has to make sense depending on what you've done before. And that could be any number of things. So this, this thing you found, like a knife you found, might just be a knife, or you might be able to link it to something earlier. And we've got to allow, allow Love Dies to explain that and allow Starlight to explain that from whichever angle you come at it. And that's quite difficult. And then when you do it with the trials, when anything in the game could or could not have happened, and the, the route you take to the trials affects other trials as well, it becomes a nightmare of tracking and huge, huge branching dialogue. I mean, there's, I've not seen all the possible options through the trials. There's just too many of them. Um, yeah, it becomes really hard to make sure that it always feels right and always feels satisfying. And the game's not tricked you because if, if, you, if the game ever suddenly inserts a bit of evidence that you should know about, uh, either intentionally or you know, through a bug, it just feels wrong. It takes so much away from the player 
So we had to be really, really careful about making sure the player was always in control and the decisions the player made were always respected, not what we wanted to happen, always what you have made happen. I found that really interesting from a narrative perspective in relation to the judge. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about the decision to have the judge render, um, well, so little judgment, uh, really, right? I mean, it, it very much seemed to me that uh, as I was going through the, the trial, and you know, not to spoil too much for, for folks who haven't done it yet, um, whichever piece of evidence I put on the table, whichever accusation I made, uh, as love dies, were the, you know, was the direction the prosecution went, and indeed the, the direction the conviction went. Um, and, you know, so that in that regard, I picked up, I don't know, after one or two turns of the trial that that was going on, uh, and it affected my decisions for the rest of the event, right? I, I made decisions, um, some of which were a little unpopular on some discord that talked uh, about <laughs> it on, to, to withhold some evidence to preserve certain characters. Um, and, you know, some decisions to, to let other pieces go forward really aggressively, depending on how I felt about Love Dies character relationships. Um, so I, I felt very much in control of that process. But at the same time, um, it, you know, it, it also uh, rendered that ending very much in my hands um, without, as you say, sort of uh, being too directive from the direction of the game. Um, I, I, yeah, I was just wondering if we you could speak a little more to that and to that process of engineering the trial with all of that choice in mind. Yeah, uh, so that the trials were one of our big concerns before release because normally with a murder mystery you get the very cool like reveal twist at the end you know the very big dramatic climax and we could never guarantee you were going to have that um because uh it all depends on what you've done and then what you present so that was a worry so um what's important then is the the journey that the, the the whole thing doesn't revolve around just the end it's all about the journey to get you to the end and then we had to abstract like so many things in the game we had to abstract the trials into kind of the essence of a trial uh, and not re recreate it in exact detail and that was you know one of the reasons we did it in this weird fantasy island with strange people on it because we we had that control and so judge is fused to the island and is an impartial um, instrument of justice. So that what we needed was something was someone that the player could fall back on and say, yes, okay, I can trust this one person out of all the people on this island. These, this is the one person that I can trust. So that is why judge uh, was designed to be bolted into that frame and could never move, thus could never be uh part of the conspiracies and um because their ego was scrubbed so that they could just be judge they could never form or mastermind a conspiracy because we just needed the player to be able to fall back and say okay this is this one person is safe um and so that means that when you get to trial we originally had a jury in and the the you would present uh, and the the jury would uh decide and 
that felt wrong and it felt like it was doing too many things and it was better for the judge to do it because that is not the the rule of the the, the role of a traditional judge the judge is there to you know enact the, the whatever verdict has been decided upon but for a game it made more sense to have uh the judge be that person and so when you go into the trials we wanted we we always talked about this and had no faith that it was going to happen was that people would do what you said and withhold evidence for certain characters so that you couldn't convict your friends or you could reshape the syndicate's future by convicting certain people. Now, if you've spent a long time with the game and then go into the trials, you'll have all the evidence you need. So when you choose someone to prosecute, you more than likely will get your conviction. But if you try replaying the trials with a, a, either a lack of evidence or not presenting some evidence, then it won't go your way. And you, you things can spiral out of control pretty quickly away from you. Uh, and that was something that we almost let cause a big problem towards the end of the game's development because when we're a small team uh, with one QA guy and uh, so when we were testing the game we would do full playthroughs like we need to check everything works so we'd scour the island get all the evidence and then we go into trial but then we started doing these partial playthroughs about a month before shipping and we were like oh my god this just falls apart <laughs> the wrong evidence gets presented characters don't get convicted the game thinks characters have been convicted when they're not because the logic just hadn't been tested but sometimes it introduced spoilers and things as well like names were mentioned that shouldn't be mentioned and yeah yeah uh, so it was um uh it, it was a very tricky process to get to but it was again it's kind of like that just abstract everything away and that's another reason for having the 2d characters is if we can abstract the characters into 2d people get the essence of what's going on rather than looking for an exact simulation or recreation. One of the things about a jury as well is, I mean, I, I always thought the idea of having a jury would be cool because you could kind of give a character to that. But as soon as you present evidence to a jury, by the definition, you hope it'll go your way, but you are introducing this element of randomness. And even if we made that completely non-random and completely strict, there's always that question about what has the game done as it gets passed to the jury. So if they come back guilty, then say, well, is that because of what I've done or because that's what the game wanted me to do? And if it comes back not guilty, why is that? So by taking that jury away, it again, leaves you in control. And uh, it's so important for you to feel represented in the game that, or, or your choices feel represented. That if you introduce any of that, that random block of, of jury, then, does it feel the same? And the answer was not really. It, it just led to questions. And as soon as you have those questions about a critical point in the, in, the, in the game, you start to question everything else as well. Yeah, right. No dice roll. Yeah, yeah exactly. Definitely. <laughs> not even the we, we couldn't allow the illusion of it. As soon as yeah. you do that, it's, it's too much. Yeah. Maybe this will bring us to the last part of our uh, interview with you guys. Um, are you hearing me? Yep. Mm -hmm. yep. Okay, just making sure. I was having <laughs> some audio feedback issues for a moment. Uh, which is just talking about the process of starting a studio and the challenges in that. Uh, you guys have had, a, from what we can tell, a super successful launch, which is amazing. Um, hopefully it feels like that to you guys too, uh, amidst 
what I imagine is a lot of uh, hard work. Uh, and, but what were some of the challenges with starting a studio that maybe you weren't expecting uh, or was it all pretty expected? And then were there any sort of tipping points for you in terms of this is the moment we're gonna do it or was it, as you mentioned earlier, just, okay, we saved up enough, now's the time. Well, from when we started the studio, um, we always had an idea. We always knew we were going to do it. It, it was bound to happen. Um, we talked about it so much. It was going to happen. And I'm quite risk adverse. So I was like, okay, well, I, I could do this. But I liked where I was working. And when I was working on the project, that was quite cool. Um, but I got a message from Ollie that said, right, I've handed my notice saying, so, oh, okay, we're doing this then. <laughs> and, uh, I thought, no, no, this is, you know, kind of immediately panicked, thinking, oh, what have we started? But then after like 10 minutes of thinking about it, I thought, no, this is absolutely right. I need to do this as well. So um, we went for it. And, you know, I suppose we did a lot of things wrong if you follow traditional advice. Like we didn't really have a completely solid idea. We didn't um, have a steady stream of income from past games or we didn't want to take on contract work because it would take away from our focus on Paradise Killer. So we kind of just went into it completely. So we just said, right, this is it. We're going to be making this game. Um, and fortunately, because we worked in the industry before, there was no massive surprises. But as everyone says, admin work takes over. There's so much of it. And whether that's admin from just you know, setting up the company or doing your accounts or putting together pitch decks to get publishers. It's all a lot of work. Mm. Um, and then there's all your personal stuff that goes on alongside it as well, which makes it really, really difficult because, you know, you, you were investing so much of yourself into this game and into the studio that personal things just get really involved too. So it's very difficult to, to kind of keep those things separate and manage the professional running a studio and your, your personal life too. Um, and yeah, I guess the thing I've, the thing with Paradise Killer is everything went really well for us, for us. So we got an idea and it worked and we were managed to pull together the core of the game really, really quickly. And all the way through development, we were able to pull in the things we want and iterate so quickly that we were able to try out all these ideas. And I think that's just because we knew we had to, to keep things as agile as possible so we we're always ready to make changes and try things out but even when it came to things like uh well, we got a publishing deal from talking to uh, a journalist for kotaku who you know put an article out there and that was great we were so excited to have an article out there in the early days and then that led to a publishing deal well how how did that happen and then we got money from uk games fund which again is like well how did that happen? How are they picking this weird game with a, a demon who's flipping you off? Why are they giving money to us? <laughs> and, you know, I suppose we just believed so strongly that we were going to make this game happen. And we worked really hard to always push it in favor of the game. You know, we never tried to, to make it be anything it wasn't. It was always stuff to support the game. And we took every opportunity we could to make it happen. And it's been difficult, really, really difficult, but super rewarding. Um, certainly the most rewarding thing I've ever done. It's just, you know, the fact it's gone out there, regardless of how well it's done in terms of sales, I'm so proud that people enjoy it. I always wanted a few people to play the game and go, oh yeah, that's all right. But the response we've had has been phenomenal. I never, ever expected it. And 
in fact, uh, right before the reviews dropped, so the day before release, I hadn't slept for about a week because I was so nervous about all these reviews. <laughs> I was so, so tired from making the game from, you know, trying to get it finished and then reviews. And then the first review dropped and it was like a nine out of 10. And I pretty much fell off my chair. It was just, <laughs> like, this is phenomenal. And, and yeah, people have enjoyed it. And it still feels weird. I don't quite know why it doesn't feel right in some way, but we, we just put out there kind of a collection of things we like and people are enjoying it and that's wonderful but i haven't got any sage advice about all the great decisions we made it just came from us and it kind of happened um yeah wonderful experience but hard yeah i think it helped that we both shipped so many games at different companies that you you understand how to make something and do something and uh, i think if we'd done this completely inexperienced we would have floundered a lot not knowing what decisions to make because every minute of every day you are adding or taking away value from the game with your decisions big and small so you have to get such a good hit rate of, of correct decisions when you're doing something uh that it's it, like i kind of see it as a, a lot of the lead designers i've worked under have been kind of like mentoring me through like not just how to design a game but how to ship a game as well like we, we just have to get something out the door, especially some of the games I've worked on have been very short turnarounds. So it's like, well, okay, what does the game need, bare minimum? How do we get it out of the door? Uh, and that is how we approached a lot of the stuff on this. It's just what, what's the bare minimum that we can ship with and then we will make it good uh, and then we will iterate up on it. And, um, and that's kind of cool because it means that you keep cycling over different parts of the game and, and bringing the quality up, but you also get to do an awful lot. Uh, but I just didn't realize uh, how much like Phil says admin there was to do. Like the worst month for me was doing the voice acting because oh. the, the voice acting is all great. I really like it, but uh, reaching out like to find 15 different actors and actresses, getting auditions back, sending out contracts, getting files back, getting edits. It was uh, all the time. I was just like, I just want to make this game. But uh, <laughs> it was constant like emails and stuff. Um, and then afterwards, like you, I'm used to uh, working on a console where you ship something and you've already got your day zero patch ready to go. So that's done. And then, uh, then you can take some time off. But we haven't really had time off from this because we've been doing the patching ourselves. And then, uh, you know, it's a very nice problem to have that uh, social media has been alight with people talking to us and sending us nice stuff and then uh you know outreach from people like yourselves doing uh, interviews and stuff is we never expected this like we expected to be sending out cvs not chatting with you guys yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well hopefully you could hold off on the cvs for quite a while yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I do remember hearing, uh, I think it was Alicia Judge uh, talking mm. about a very positive experience doing voice work with you guys. Uh, yeah, she was on, great. I would say IGN UK. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, all the voice. I don't want to make that sound like the voice actors were were uh, was problematic or anything. It was just like this unexpected thing. We got this funding from the UK Games Fund, and one of the things we pitched for was voice acting. But you don't realize just how much production work that takes up normally you at another studio you would have a producer and you know i would say i need this many voice lines go off and make that happen and send me the files when they're done uh, but then you do it this time uh, uh, by ourselves uh, and uh, yeah she was excellent they were all excellent to work with um yeah. it was, it just I, things I, 
asking for, you know, we want um, a character with this dialect and you'd get 15 responses and only one of them would be right, but you've got to deal with all the other 14, you know, saying, no, thank you. You've got to listen to them. Um, and then you've got to obviously work out what they're saying, how it's going to be cut up. It's, yeah, it was a huge amount of work to get that done. Um, not so much for me, for Ollie, he did nearly all of that. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of work for one. Multiply that by the 15 we had to get. And it's just, yeah, it can be draining. And we didn't plan for it. Like we, we planned for a lot of things really well. But because this games fund money, UK games fund money came in after we'd kind of made our plans, um, we had to slot it in amongst everything else as the game was getting, as our schedule was getting busier and busier because we were getting near to final. So you're having to make these final decisions on so many things. Like this is the way this is going to look. This is the way this is going to work. Oh, and I also need to spend three days doing this admin stuff. It's, it gets, gets quite intense. So maybe what we can end on is a, maybe a heavy question and a light question. <laughs> Which do you guys want to do first, the heavy or the light? Let's do the heavy. Yeah. <laughs> so the heavy is, how do you feel about the state of the game industry right now, especially uh, in terms of indie devs, in terms of folks trying to break into the scene that maybe aren't trying to do the AAA or even the AA uh, scale of games? Do you feel like it's well supported? It's nice to know that there's UK grants out there. Uh, that are helping guys like you. Uh, but yeah, how are you feeling about the state of the game industry? Um, what do you hope to see change? What do you hope to see stay the same? <laughs> I mean, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? There's so much talent out there and it is now easier than ever to make a game. It, without Unreal being in the state it's in, we couldn't have made Paradise Killer. Like we were using features they were pushing into Fortnite to try and make Paradise Killer run on Switch. So we're like, without if we were trying to make this game a year ago, it would have been a headache even with that distance. So right now you've got all these people making games and there's some amazing stuff coming out. So that's wonderful. Uh, but the problem with it is it makes it much harder to be successful because you've got a much bigger audience. Like it's no secret that there's so many indie games out there. It's problematic. And you've also got the problem that a lot of people are aspiring to make games and a lot of people will put all their life savings and you know, all their energy and time into making a game. And the chances are it's not going to be successful. Like we've been really lucky and a certain amount of it is down to luck. You know, there's no magic formula to making a super successful game. Um, so it, it's really like for indie devs, I would want to encourage people as much as possible to make interesting, unique games. Like do the thing that AAAs can't do, make something that is personal to you and it will speak to other people as well. But you have to pair it with business. The, the days where you could just uh, put a game out and it would sell because there's so few options are gone. You have to have a kind of a business head. How are we going to survive? How are we going to eat? What are we going to do afterwards? What happens when this goes well? What happens when it goes badly? Um, and a lot of indie devs don't like to think about that because it's boring and it's hard and it's full of uncertainty. But you have to have a bit of a business head to go with it as well. Yeah, partway through development, we saw a tweet from I think it's Future Labs down in Brighton and they were saying like the best thing you can do is uh, never spend your own money on making a game always have um, something signed so and we were suddenly like oh yeah that is really common sense we should do that so <laughs> like, partway through production of Paradise Killer we had to down tools and pitch for our next game 
which was very, very difficult to do because we had no time or money to put into doing a demo. And the indie publishing scene is very much driven by demos. Like if you don't have a demo, most places won't talk to you. And you know, we have a future, we, have, we, we know what our future is now, uh, but it was very hard to do. So that's something that we didn't realize. And I think a lot of people won't realize as well. But I think the, the, the main problem with the indie scene uh, in, in games is discoverability because the stores, the console stores especially, are so bad at mm -hmm. uh, surfacing cool games. I, I saw uh, a post on Reset Era the other day that said, a thread that said, you know, will we ever get back to the variety of games that we had on the PS2? And I, are you out of your mind? They're out there. The, the variety of games we have now is incredible. There's too many games to play, too many like amazing looking games to play. Of so many cool concepts, so many different lengths and sizes and all sorts of things. It's wonderful, but the stores just can't surface them. But the, the, the console stores, I, I haven't looked at the Microsoft stores, I don't have a, an Xbox, but um, certainly the Sony and Nintendo stores, I just think so bad at, at highlighting cool games. Um, and, you know, that's why we're seeing that awful practice of discounting your game by 90% on the Switch, because that's the only way that you can get some visibility. Um, Steam does a slightly better job, but it's still not good. Uh, and I think that's really the, might be a bottleneck on some of these, some of industry growth is, is the discoverability. And that's why, you know, like social media is good and websites are great at when you have to make something that people want to evangelize for you. I want to shout to their friends on Twitter that this game is cool uh, and you should check it out. And uh, without that, I don't know what the solution is other than uh, the stores hiring teams of curators, which I hope they do, because that's, you know, really what it should be. Um, uh, yeah. How with that? The curation thing is, I mean, in theory, it's the right idea. But again, it's, it can be so easily manipulated or it will naturally go in favor of what's popular. You know, in games, there's just so many things, the rich get richer. The um, AAA have always got such a big market that they will always continue to have that. Um, and successful games will continue to be successful because they're always at the top of the list. You know, there's a sale out, it's at the top of the list. It's easy to be discoverable. Um, so, you know, I, I'm pretty sure the very best game ever made has probably been undiscovered. It's just down there in some list on the App Store or on Switch or on whatever. It's just not been seen because, uh, yeah, as Ollie said, there's no way to get that out there unless you have contacts or money. And it's a problem. Um, even like getting grants and things like, like I say, we got the UK Games Fund grant. It's great to have it, but it's really hard to get those and they're not widely available enough. So your average indie studio is not going to get it. And that's not a reflection on quality. It's all dependent on like where you are in development, what you need, how you're going to use that money. There's so many reasons why you wouldn't get financial support that the odds are stacked against you. And even if you do get it, it's not a magic bullet. Um, you know, it doesn't guarantee you'll even get your game made, let alone released and be successful. I feel like we wouldn't be doing our due diligence since you opened the door just a little bit, uh, not to ask a little bit about what you're working on next, or if you're, I don't imagine you're ready to announce anything, but are you thinking something similar scope? Are you thinking something larger scope? Are you guys scaling up, hiring, or are you guys kind of keeping it small and sort of- I think we will always stay small, but the next game that we're doing is a lot bigger um, in terms of features and uh, 
we are doing at least one hire that we're not ready to announce yet, but we're very happy about that. And uh, uh, what I think our vision for the company was to always make cool games, no matter what they are, um, and not be tied to a single um, genre or IP. So our next game is not something that I thought we would ever make. Uh, it's very, very different to what we would uh, normally pitch ourselves and uh, and play. But uh, I think it's such a cool game. You know, obviously, because we're now committing to it. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's such a cool game. But I think we what we there's a load of lessons to take from Paradise Killer about what people have responded to and how the Kaizen house style is applied to other games. And I don't think this next game will be weird and, and psychedelic in the way that Paradise Killer is, but it will have, I hope, some of the, like, the design and artistic lessons that we've learned from, from the game yeah. uh, going forward. Keeping the feel of it. I mean, the, the values that uh, we use to make Paradise Killer will retain into the next game, the next game, until such a time where we want to, you know, reassess that. But it's always going to be about making games that we want to play, we enjoy, and, yeah, focusing on what we think is important. Um, so, yeah, watch this space, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if there's a better place than we can end there. Don, what do you think? <laughs> That's perfect. Watch this space, yeah. <laughs> Ali, Phil, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, we really appreciate you taking the time and what I know is a busy moment. But, you know, I think, I know I am just, I've super enjoyed playing Paradise Killer. Uh, I'm very happy we were able to connect. Thank you very much. Thank thanks you so very much. much for the yeah. opportunity. Thank you for the great review and uh, wanting to, to interview us. So I said, we expected to be do, doing CVs uh, rather than having people wanting to talk to us about our weird little game. So this, uh, this should be a job them. interview right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, if yeah. you want, I can ask you. You know, questions <laughs> like what your what you feel your greatest weakness is, <laughs> you know, in which you obviously respond, our perfectionism. Yeah, used that one too many times. Oh yeah. <laughs> no, we, we really. It's been, a, it's been a pleasure. It's great, so much. great to talk to you and uh, yeah, keep in touch. All right, that sounds good. We'll let you know when the interview's uh, up and uh, we'll keep in touch. Cool, Excellent. thanks very much. Thank you. Right. Bye guys. Bye. 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 Cool. All right, I am gonna stop recording.